Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. To lead us into Isaiah chapter 55, Larry, thank you for that. He uh, started us off with an invitation of, Will you come to the fountain that's free? And the song that we're going to sing after this is, I am coming, Lord. And uh, I hope that all of us here today will be making such a declaration, if not in our hearts, in our lives. So Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, and Isaiah 55, those three chapters. If you needed to try to understand what Christianity is really all about, you could find it inside of those three chapters. I know there are parts of Christianity that can get a little bit confusing sometimes. Some doctrines can get a little bit deep, and there are a lot of things that get nuanced in Scripture that um, can overwhelm us. But at the heart, at the center, at the core foundation of Christianity stands the message of Isaiah 53, 54, and 55. And that's why we slowed down the last few weeks to talk about those three chapters. Isaiah 53 tells us the action of the gospel, that God, through Jesus Christ, takes our place and sets us free from our sin. Isaiah 54 tells us the blessing of the gospel, that it is actually God's grace, unmerited favor, that changes us from the inside out. So many people in religion are trying to change from the outside in. Grace comes in when you understand the message of grace and changes you from your heart to your fingers. In Isaiah 55, if we have the action of the gospel and the blessing of the gospel, Isaiah 55 is God's invitation because of the gospel if God has done what he said he has done in chapter 53 and if the blessings are true in chapter 54 about what grace does to us we come to 55 where God says from the mountaintops come all of you come I want everybody to have this Our text that Mike read for us leads us to really three simple questions that I want to help explain. I want to walk through them with you so that this passage will not just be um, eloquent to our ears, but actually effective in our hearts and our minds that we might actually change the way we live. The first question is this, who is God actually inviting? Who are the recipients of this invitation? And Verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 55 give us some imagery, some poetic language to kind of reveal to us who God is inviting. Now, the simple answer is this. God invites everyone. All who can hear, come. But he gives us a story, a kind of a picture here in verses 1 and 2 that give us three specific kinds of people that are being invited by the Lord's invitation. Now, you'll see under these three umbrellas, All of us are going to fall somewhere under this umbrella, but he's inviting us. The first one is this. He invites um, the thirsty, the thirsty. You notice he says in verse 1, come everyone who thirsts. The imagery is this. Thirsty is those people who have nothing left to drink. They've consumed all that they have. 
and they've run throughout their life in a way that they are now in desperate need of something else, and they've got nothing. Every part of their life or our life is dried up in this moment. Hope is gone. The plans that we made seem to be wrecked. All the streets that we've headed down in our lives have ended up being dead-end streets, and we're empty, unfulfilled, dissatisfied, and we're knowing in our hearts and our minds that there's got to be something more, and we're thirsty for something more because everything that we've tried has failed us. And he says, come, you who are thirsty. You've tried a lot of different wells. You've drank from a lot of different places. None of it's satisfying, and now you're thirsty because you're out. He also says that he wants to invite the broke, not just financially broke, but those who are broke. He says, come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. He who has no money. The broke are those that have nothing in their possession to really be able to acquire what we're looking for, what we're searching for. Everything that you think you want, that you think you need, seems to be out of your reach. Strength might be gone. All the motivation you would need to go get that thing might be gone. Even your expectation that life could be better because you have nothing left to get what you need. Come to me, you who are thirsty. Come to me, you who are broke and have no money to buy. Now, these first two seem kind of obvious, right? That's kind of where Christianity steps in to those who are thirsty, those who are broke, those who recognize I have nothing left to provide for myself. I have nothing left to give. Every place that I've gone has turned up empty. And now I'm wandering in the desert, thirsty, dry, and parched. And I need something beyond myself. Come, the thirsty and the broke. But there's a third category of people. And there's a chance that this third category of people would qualify for many of us in this room. Some of you may not have made it to the end of your rope yet. Some of you may still have strength and wisdom and insight and maybe going after things of yourself that you might be trying to do. He says there's a third group of people that these are not those who are no money, no power, no pull, no strength, no hope. These are different. He says, I want you also to come, those who are the misguided. Look in verse 2. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? There's a good chance a significant portion of the people in this room have resources at their disposal that may not be at the state of thirsty and broke but are still going after things. And what he's saying is, listen, I want you also who are misguided to come as well. The person who has money and strength, this person is using their strength and spending their money. And the result is this, unmet expectation, frustration, disappointment. This person has money, they've got strength. They're not like the first two who are burnt out and at the end of the rope. Maybe you're still spending your money. Maybe you're still working for that next dream, still coming up with what to chase after this next thing, changing jobs, changing cities, changing cars, changing relationships, finding new friends. You need new things constantly, hobbies and projects, mission for your life, and things come and go, and you still aren't satisfied, content, at peace. 
He's saying, why are you buying bread that does not fill you up? Why are you laboring for things that aren't going to satisfy you? Yes, the invitation is for the broke, it's for the thirsty, but it's also for the misguided. Those who keep going after thing after thing and coming up and saying, but I'm still not satisfied, what's next? If you are living your life constantly saying, what's next? Or you run through the course of the next thing you're doing and saying, okay, I've got to have the next thrill, the next excitement, the next thing to focus on because you're not content. He's saying, come, let me give you something that will make you content. Question one, who is invited? Thirsty, broke, but also misguided. Question number two is this. What is God actually offering you? What is he inviting you to have? And again, Isaiah is going to use some imagery for you to make some sense of this. So you've got to work through his poetry to understand what God is actually inviting you. So if you find yourself in one of these three categories today, thirsty or broke or misguided, let's pay close attention to what he's inviting you to have. Now the text is going to use three different beverages, three different drinks that he offers you. And these things represent our deepest needs. He says he wants you to come and buy that, that which without money, water, milk, and wine. And what he's trying to tell you is that God offers at the deepest level everything you need and everything you want. Let's start with the first thing. God is offering us, first of all, what we need for survival, for relief. That's what the water is for. He says, come you who are thirsty, buy water without money. Meaning you need to come drink of this water. These are the ones who are thirsty, who are desperate. Um, some of you have probably been outside lately in the last, I know the last couple days have been pretty nice, but think about maybe last Sunday. Did anybody work outside last Sunday or throughout the week? I mean, it was torturously hot, right? Painfully hot. I uh, painted our deck last Sunday between services and about an hour into it, I was like, whew, way too much. You know, I was soaking wet and all I wanted to drink. I walked in the house and we had some array of pop. We had some different um, lemonade. I think we had, we had some iced tea. All I wanted was cold water. That's all I wanted. I was thirsty. I was desperate. I was in need of survival. I was in need of relief. It reminds us of what David said when he said, God as our shepherd leads us beside still water, and in that he restores or refreshes our soul. So he offers us water when we're needing survival. So if you maybe are desperate, thirsty, wandering, and dry and parched, he says, come, I've got water for you to refresh you. But he also says, come and buy from me milk, that which gives you strength. Now, when you are gasping for life, all you need is water. You want water to refresh you. But if you need ongoing nourishment, you also need milk. Think of what we do with little babies. As soon as they're born, we are feeding them things, milk, constantly, because we're trying to nourish them to health, trying to give them strength. And here's what God's trying to tell you with this. That God is not just for the emergencies. Your relationship with God is not just for the peaks and the valleys. When you need him most in the most desperate moments, God is actually there wanting to relate with you for the long haul. For every normal Monday and mundane Tuesday and every normal during the week, God wants to daily nourish you with strength. He's there for your ongoing strength and nourishment. So he's here offering us relief, 
so we can survive, but also strength. But the last thing he's offering us as he corresponds to wine is satisfaction, joy, fullness of life. This wine that he's using here corresponds with our need for exhilaration and fullness of life and joy. You see, you and I want to live our lives, not just wait to die. Even if you have the most stoic expressions and you are reserved and cautious and quiet, inside of every person is a desire to live their life, not just hold on until you die. And what he's saying is people from all over turn to physical wine to try to lift up their spirits in which we know scripture warns that doesn't work. But he says, come buy from me a kind of wine that actually satisfies, fulfills you, and gives you the kind of life that you're wanting to live. Do you see what God is offering? He's offering you what you need to survive. He's offering what you need for strength. But he's also offering you what you need for the fullest, most joy-filled, abundant life you could have. Jesus said it this way when he talked about himself being the good shepherd, and that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He said, I have come that you might have abundant life good life, happy, joy-filled, content, peaceful life. That's what I've come for. And he tells us that God is not just offering, in verse 2, he's not just offering us an alternative to what other people are offering us. Like, hey, I know this guy's offering you this and this, but I've got something over here. Here's what God's offering us in verse 2. He says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. God is not just offering something different. God is offering what is best, the very best. Now, why? How do we know what God is offering us is the, actually the very best? Well, if you look in verse 3, he tells you why. It's very subtle, but you've got to catch it. He said over and over, come and buy water, come and buy milk, come and buy wine. Now he says in verse 3, incline your ear and come me come to me you see what God offers is the very best because the very best is actually him he's not offering some product he's not offering something that he can just give you and you go away from him and do your own thing without him what he's offering you for survival and strength and all your satisfaction is actually him himself I am the wine I am the bread I am the milk I am the water and when you come to him and you drink from him, you have everything you need in life. So who's invited? The thirsty, the broke, the misguided. What is he offer us, offering us? Survival, strength, and satisfaction. How do you receive it? I found this interesting this week. I was reading verses 1 through 3 over and over and over. I usually like to read it 30 or 40 or 50 times, just kind of get into the text and I noticed that there were 12 commands, 12 commands in verses 1 to 3. I'm going to read it one more time and see if you can pluck out the things God is telling you to do, okay? Here's the command. So you be an active listener, an active reader, and see if you can pull out what the commands are. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, he who has no money. Come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good 
Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. I know we read that kind of fast, but did you pluck out some of the words that were the commands? Over and over and over, God's saying this, Come, buy from me, eat, listen, incline your ear, learn from me. What does it take to receive what he's offering us? How do we get what he's offering to us? We come, we buy from him, we listen to him, we incline ourselves to him. Now, the reason I included verses 6 through 9 is Isaiah kind of sharpens what this means because it's still in metaphor language. What the Bible's really trying to say here, Isaiah's trying to say, you really have to have faith. You've got to come to him. But he's going to sharpen this in verses 6 and 7. Listen to this. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. See, God is calling us, first of all, to come and to ask. You and I must come and ask. This invitation is for everyone. The price, free to you. But you must come and you must ask. He will not force salvation upon anyone that doesn't want it he believes in relationship he believes in love he is the god of love the god of connection and he will not force that upon anybody but he invites you and you must come and you must ask now this requires of you humility because you'll keep running through your life getting thirsty and broke maybe even being misguided so long as you have pride saying I've got this figured out I'm going to do it my own way I'm going to handle my own business I'm going to find my own joy my own life I can do this on my own so long as you run with pride you'll be broke exhausted thirsty and tired this requires from you humility to come and to ask God I can't do it anymore I believe what you have to offer is better than what I can produce. Can I please have it? But you also have to, as he says in verse 7, forsake and return. Listen to verse 7 again. He says, let the wicked forsake his ways and let, verse 7, the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. That's crucial. There's two parts to this. You and I have to leave our faulty ways, meaning we've got to change. We've got to be different. We've got to forsake that which is not working. And this is really where Christianity gets hard. You see, you're probably up to this point with me, like saying, yes, okay, God, I'll ask, and things aren't working, and I need something better, and I'll ask. But now we're at the point where he's saying, hey, what you're doing is not working. Are you willing to leave it? Are you willing to walk away? Are you willing to step aside from things that you have done for six months, six years, or 60 years that have left you disappointed and frustrated? Will you walk a different way? But the second part is this. Will you also think a different way? Some of us are so deeply entrenched in our frustrations in life because we are trained to think the wrong way. 
For some reason, humans just automatically believe every thought they have in their own mind. Have you ever thought to doubt your thoughts before? You have a thought, an idea, a concept, something pops into your mind. You should actually pause before you believe everything you think. You really should, because everything you think is not right. I don't know why humans do this. It's probably our pride. But for some reason, we see ourselves as the center of all that's right and true. And everything we think is right and true. And everything everybody else thinks or says or does is probably off a little bit because it doesn't align with me. But the spoiler alert is this. Everything you think is not true. No one lies to you more than you lie to you. And Satan manipulates, deceives, and lies to you and tricks you. And what happens is oftentimes you and I think lies to ourselves which keep us in situations and sin that keep us from God. You keep sinning because you're thinking wrong. And that's why Paul says, by the mercy of God, I beg you to let grace transform your mind. Let it be renewed in your mind. You have to forsake your faulty ways and your false thoughts. But you can't just leave those things behind saying, I don't want them anymore. You've got to actually return to the one who came for you, the one you've always been looking for. We're desperate for a love story. We're desperate to be wanted, to be loved, to be cared for. That's why we go to the movies month after month, year after year, falling for this same story over, you guys know this, right? Hollywood has like a template, you know? couple looks at each other there's love at first sight some tragic event happens that looks like it's going to keep them apart forever and all of a sudden they overcome that obstacle and come together and their life is perfect forever you fall for this over and over it's the same story from disney to miramat all of them do this why well the answer is why c.s lewis became a christian because J.R. tolkien looked at him and said the reason we're drawn to this story is because we live this story is divinely in you. You're desperate to love somebody who wants you. Begging for it. That's why it hurts so bad when people you love turn away from you. Because you're wired to want the person that wants you most. Let me tell you about that person. He left the glory and riches of heaven as a perfect being. Took on the weakness of and the suffering of human flesh lived absolutely perfectly deserved at the end of his life to just catapult to heaven and say i'm coming back god and said but if i do that i'll leave them behind and i will not go back without them and he died on a cross in your place went into a tomb for three days and by the power of only God himself breathed life back into that dead body and came back to life and he said now I've made the way I told you I was going to make he says I'm going to make a way for you I'm the way and he paved the journey from the grave out of the grave to heaven for you and said that's I want you that story in John 14 when Jesus said you know don't let your hearts be sorrowful Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again and receive you to myself. You know what that's from? First century Jewish marriage. 
where the where the, uh, the, the fiance would go back to his father's house and build a place for his wife to live and the bride would be waiting and waiting and waiting at her father's house until over the hill the husband would come and say, I've made the house for you, I'm ready, come be my wife. And then he would take her back home. Jesus is saying, I'm the spouse you've always been looking for. I've made the home, I've come for you. Now I've come to take you home. And if you don't believe that, because here's the lie Satan convinces you, and some of you are going to sit in this pew today and not respond to this because of this lie. He probably won't want me. He probably won't accept me. The things I've done, if I listed for the, them for you, preacher, you wouldn't want me either. You'd probably think that. Now look what he says in verse 7, verse, uh, verse 5. He says, he will abundantly forgive you at the end of verse 7. He will abundantly pardon you. Now, what we oftentimes do is say, no way, not possible. He can't do this. He won't do this. And that's why we usually quote verses 8 and 9 out of context. We usually use verses 8 and 9 to say how smart God is, how wise God is. And that's always true. But verses 8 and 9, listen to them, are in response to this unfathomable truth that God saves sinners. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Meaning this, yes, I save sinners. My ways are not your ways. I come up with answers that you can never come up with to save sinners. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So if you have the thought right now, there's no way God could forgive me, no way he could save me, no way he would want me. He's saying, I don't think like you. So even if you think that, he's saying, I don't care. I could care less if you think that way. I want you to know how I think. You're mine, and I've proven it to you. Facts over feelings. Do you believe Jesus loves you? It's time to respond. Let's stay in the same.